listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone, this is our first episode of 2021, and while I was going to say that so far, 2021 feels a whole lot like 2020, considering what happened yesterday, January 6th, at the Capitol Building in D.C., that doesn't feel true anymore for me. I don't know about you, but I have been glued to the news, listening, watching, taking in everything that happened when insurrectionists broke in and wreaked havoc. And today, the day after, I'm continuing to listen to the fallout and the analysis of all that occurred. It got me thinking about how when someone dies or gets diagnosed with an advanced serious illness, we all react differently. Some of us take to the internet, scouring for any information we can find. Some try to block it all out, and most of us fall somewhere in the middle. I was thinking, too, of those who were grieving someone who died in a public tragedy, like a school shooting, a plane crash, the shooting at the Pulse nightclub, 9-11 or other terrorist attack, and also those who are grieving a member of the Black community being killed by police violence. It's also important to voice the disparity in the reaction from police yesterday, especially compared to how they responded to the protests for Black Lives Matter and social justice over this past year. When your person dies and their death is highly publicized, seeing things like legislators and staffers being rushed to safety, hearing about them hiding under desks and in offices, and not really knowing what's happening, can bring back memories in your mind and your body of what it was like when your own tragedy unfolded. It's a lot. I don't have any answers or really any words of comfort. I just go back to the foundational principles of grief support, acknowledgement, validation, and community. So it felt important to at least acknowledge what was and continues to be happening in our world, while also wanting to get this episode out to you. This episode is actually pretty hard to introduce, not because of the topic or the guest, but because in our conversation, we talk about so many different aspects of grief and with such nuance. This episode doesn't lend itself to being reduced to a single theme or a tagline. I'm not surprised, really, as our guest, Julia Mallory, is a writer and a poet. And in poetry, every word matters. The meaning, the placement, the sound. And in our conversation, Julia was as precise and intentional as she is in her writing. Julia Mallory, as I said, is a writer. She's a poet. She's a mother. She's a creative. And she's a facilitator. She's also a grieving daughter and a grieving mother. Her oldest son, Julian, was shot and killed in 2017. Her father died when she was a teenager. When her son was killed, Julia had a sense that creativity would be a place for her to go. And in that place, she wrote Survivor's Guilt, a collection of essays and poems about grief, about joy, about where and how they intersect. Julia is the founder and creator of Black Mermaids, a brand that, and I'm quoting here from her website, represents what it means to be bold, brave, and resilient. 
while embodying modern storytelling and honoring ancestral traditions. In our conversation, Julie and I talk about the early days of grief, about why we both struggle with the idea of resilience, and about how important it is to broaden that intersection of joy and grief so that it can be more accessible and less prescriptive. Julia, thank you so much for joining me today for Grief Out Loud. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to tell my story. Let's start, as we do for most of our Grief Out Loud episodes, with talking about the person or the people that we carry uh, that we're grieving. And so tell us a little bit about your son, Julian, and what kind of kid was he, and, and how did he shape you as a mother? Julian uh, was my oldest born child, and he was like a typical teenager in a lot of ways. Um, He definitely was very headstrong and oftentimes had a very, um, (laughs) a very rebellious streak. He was also a very uh, nurturing and kind person as well. He liked children. They really liked him um, as well. He was also a very athletic person. Um, he had played organized youth sports since he was five. And he had a certain passion for the game that he absolutely did not get from me. But it was a joy to, to watch him. He, was a, he played football and basketball. And it was always a joy to watch his passion on the field and the court. So you said he did not get his uh, skill and love of the game from you. But I'm wondering about the rebellious, headstrong piece, if maybe that came a little bit from his mom. We definitely were alike in a lot of ways, both uh, Taurus sons, and um, <laughs> we definitely, definitely had um, some similar personality traits. He was also very extroverted, a person that was very comfortable talking to anyone, talking to strangers. If we went somewhere socially, um, it was not unusual for him to connect with people and meet, make new friends and get future invitations for outings. He just was very extroverted like that. Um, And the other question you asked me was, how did he shape me as a mother? Um, I think I had Julian, I was a teenage mother, and he just made me take life serious in a certain type of way, having a child um, as a very young person. And I think he gave me a certain type of focus as well. So Julia, with Julian died very suddenly, he was shot and and killed. And with that sudden death, you know, getting a phone call, it all happening so fast. Just wondering, what do you remember about the early days of grief and how it showed up for you, like physically, emotionally, cognitively, like all the ways that grief can affect us? Absolutely. So um, Julian was shot and we removed him from life support four days later. So it was sudden and not sudden at the same time. And the early days of grief for me look like I carry the grief even to this day. Um, it shows up to me as like a very heavy body feel, um, especially in my shoulders and my arms for some reason. And it also impacted my memory. It was very, you know, I know that we believe that trauma impacts, you know, how we remember. Um, grief definitely impacted my memory. So when I got the phone call, and actually I didn't get the phone call, my daughter got the phone call. But in the process of trying to locate what hospital he was locally, you know, because he was a victim of crime, 
there is a certain kind of we don't give out information, right, to protect the person who has been harmed. And so I was driving. I left my house. My mother lives right around the corner. I went to pick her and my sister up so that we could go find the hospital. And so I was unable. My sister was calling. I was driving. We were not getting, you know, the response about where he was at. And then I thought about the location of where it happened and figured it could only be pretty much one logical place where they could have taken him. But what ended up happening, I ended up developing this um, anxiety around driving. I couldn't drive myself for weeks after his death. And so that was another way in which grief showed up for me. What eventually shifted that for you of, of being able to get in the car and drive again? I really think it was time. I think it was, um, you know, tr- some of the shock subsided. And I think just being able to also say kind of what can I reclaim as far as normalcy is concerned. And so I think it was allowing myself the time, not forcing it. And then when things did feel different, being okay with that they did feel different. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting part of grief. Things can be so hard or painful in a particular way. And if that starts to shift, there's some pain along with that too. And having to be able to give ourselves the permission to have it be different. Absolutely. And it's very hard because even our progress is... Even our progress is connected to the reality that we've experienced some substantial pain. And so even when you're making progress, it can it's a reminder of, oh, I'm moving away from the thing that happened. And then, oh, there's that thing that happened. So it can be very difficult for me, at least. Um, it was very difficult to understand that cycle and just to be OK with holding those uh, dual realities. And when Julian died you weren't new to grief in the fact that, you know, you're a grieving mother, but also a grieving daughter, that your father died when you were 13. And do you have a sense of how the grief from when you were 13, like carried forward and maybe played a role in the, in the way that you grieve for Julian? I think the way that I'm grieving for my own son is uh, radically different than what I did when my father passed. I think as a young person, I didn't really understand grief. Um, and that, that magnitude, I don't necessarily feel like my family was grief avoidant, but I think that there wasn't enough that was done. And so I knew that I had kind of this, this past to look at, but knowing that I needed to do something radically different or else I would not be able to be well. I'm the type of person that looks for patterns too. So I think also just like looking at that and just saying, what's the connection here and you know what am I supposed to do with my time on this earth as related to being you know a grieving daughter and a grieving mother so I miss that like bigger picture piece of it and also the idea that as a teenager you didn't really understand grief and maybe there wasn't enough like support or acknowledgement of it but going into and then having Julian die you knew that this was something of magnitude and something that needed to be carried and cared for and engaged with in a certain way. Right. And I think one of the things I said that I would like to clarify, when I think about it, it's not that my family wasn't supportive. Um, You know, everybody grieves in their own way. But I do remember being as a teenager, myself being very grief avoidant. Like I remember just not wanting to, to be enmeshed with the whole situation. And, you know, now years later, just it's so radically different. 
I, I hear that a lot with the teens that are in our grief support groups for grieving teens of like, I don't want, I don't want this to be my reality. I don't want this to be my whole reality. I don't want my life to be defined by this. I, they may not be using those exact words, but it seems like this, I just want to distance myself from what this means or what this could mean for me. Right. And I definitely remember just feeling like putting a lot of distance between my family sometimes and those moments like where the where we're coming together as, you know, as mourners. And yeah, no, I, I totally understand that perspective <laughs> when you're young and it's already being a teenager, teenager is already hard enough. And so then you have this other thing and depending on the circumstances, too, it can it can be a lot. I remember hearing you talk about how when you were a kid, you really turned to books as a way to learn about the world and learn about other people and learn about yourself and wondering if in your grief, both the grief for your father and the grief for Julian, like what books or authors did you turn to? So when my dad passed, I don't really have the memory around. I was looking at specific texts or anything like that, but I do know now I am I'm reading so much. I'm uh, reading so much related to grief because I think um, also as a, as a Black American woman, I feel like there's not a whole lot. I don't know. Grief is so much a, a part of our experience. So it's kind of interwoven in a lot of texts. But I don't, I'm not sure if there are just these substantial books written about Black grief specifically. And so I've been trying to inform myself as much as I can too, to continue to re- be a resource and help other folks heal through grief. And so I've been reading a lot um, and even just things that I've reread and just like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how much grief was central to this story. So as a poet, I definitely look to the poets a lot for, for things on grief. And um, Lucille Clifton is a poet who talk, who grief is, is very much central to a lot of the writing that she has done. Another poet who actually wrote a memoir about the sudden passing of her husband, Elizabeth Alexander, um, has a book called The Light of the World. And that I read that book when it like first came out, I think in like 2015. And it's some of the most gorgeous writing that I've read um, related to grief. In grief there... Well, let me say this a different way because I don't, well, no, that's true, actually. The people who are grieving and the people who are around the people who are grieving, there is such this urge to like get back to normal, whether that's from an internal urge or an external expectation. And like, I'm wondering how you relate to that. Like, let's get back to normal. And then also wondering, like, what's your take on the word resilience and, and how it's used in grief? Because it's one people ask me about all the time and I stumble around trying to figure out explaining, articulating why that word makes me uncomfortable. So I'd love to hear from you. Like, what's your take on it? Sure. So I totally understand people's rush to want to get back to normalcy. Um, it, it has a lot of, you know, complicated, you know, layers. I think for me and my, in my lived experience, I did not want to rush back to normalcy. I thought that if I did not process at the necessary level, that I would not be able to um, to really understand what was going to happen with me in the long term. And so um, I tried to delay that rush to normalcy as much as I could. And even in hindsight, I also realized that I probably did go back to work 
a week or two too soon. Because I did take some time for myself and just kind of, you know, wandering about life. But um, I think there was also a part of me that was like, okay, so what does it look like on the other side? I wanted to kind of test out if I was ready, right? It's easy to be like, oh, you're ready just kind of being here. But then I was like, I kind of want to see how I, I need something to compare what I'm going to build over here as far as a new normal. So I did, I did try to go back to work. Um, I understand the complications. We want to rush back to normalcy because one, we're trying to get away from the pain of just what the loss has like. And if some of us feel like we're sitting in it, that's an uncomfortable feeling. Sometimes the rush to normalcy is even for really um, basic reasons. Like, People have to work and support themselves and take care of their kids and take care of other people. And so I understand that piece of it as well. And for the people that are kind of surrounding the mourning, the people who are mourning, sometimes the the expectation I think is unreasonable for people to rush back to normalcy because we want to be comfortable and we want, um, sometimes we're also looking, the comfort is not just like, hey, don't cry or don't I don't know how to comfort you but sometimes depending on people's also relationship to the loss sometimes they're also looking to that person to help assure them that it's okay right they're also sometimes looking to that person that is in deep grief to give them some type of sign that things will be okay um we also are in a hyper capitalist society that really we're also used to and I don't want to say all, but the, a lot of us, too many of us, right? We're so used to just pushing past the pain and the interest of being productive. Our productivity is definitely not going to cure our pain or heal our pain. It will absolutely distract it and keep it busy, but it will not be the thing that will help us to get well. So I totally understand. And I try to, in my grief work with people, I really try to, I try to remove the shame piece of it by making people feel like, oh, you need to stop doing those things because I understand how we get there. And I understand also sometimes we don't have the practical resources and support that we need. I was not even in, in trying to, uh, to grow my writing because I was a, a, new, a new author when my son passed. And so initially I wasn't focused on that, but then I, I knew that creativity would be something that could be healing and therapeutic for me. So I wasn't trying to rush into it, but I I knew that there was something that if I could find some way to kind of navigate some of what I I was used to, that it could give me some type of grounding and some type of foundation. You also asked me about resilience. And even the word resilient is part of my brand's tagline. But as I talk about in Survivor's Guilt, I have a complicated relationship to that to the concept of resilience because I think sometimes people forget the cost that resilience comes with. Resilience is not just something that we try on and we say, "Ooh, I like being resilient." That's not how it happens, right? Resilience is kind of this it's like a vintage hand-me-down that sometimes is two sizes too big for many of us. And then we just find a way to make the garment fit. But resilience is not just something we just, you know, that just comes to us. 
um, it is something that we earned with some of the most painful and difficult things that have happened to us. And so I see the word, I think, often tossed around a bit too casually. I absolutely want to acknowledge and praise folks for finding a way after situations that seem like there could be no way. And I think I think that is something that is is praiseworthy. But then I also, it's hard because sometimes I'm like, I don't want to privilege just that because there are some folks, are they're not failures just because it's taken them longer or they have not been able to find a way, right? It's Life can be really hard. So I think sometimes resilience has kind of come to be this really like almost a sterile word, um, kind of almost kind of leaning sometimes into the toxic positivity realm um, without really acknowledging the weight of what resilience caused. And also saying that when we say resilient, right, let's never detach the reality of what people had to, (laughs) I'm going to make up a word here, resil against, right? (laughs) Like resilience doesn't just drop out of the sky. Yeah, it makes me think what you were saying earlier of how sometimes when the support folks of people who are grieving really want that person to be okay because then they know it's everything's going to be okay, whatever okay means. And I sometimes struggle with the way the idea like, well, kids are resilient or people are resilient or how do we build up people's resiliency, which is helpful to be able to adapt to what our circumstances are presenting us with. But it leaves out the conversation about the circumstances, you know, the focus ends up being so much on how do we adapt to this without really, it's almost like a bypass to actually address the conversation, right? I mean, people will die in our lives, but what are the structures in place that are creating so much of a need for adaptation? Uh, Do we have adequate leave from our employment? Do we have adequate employment? Do we have adequate social support? Do we have secure housing? What are the ways that racism and oppression are playing into our capacity to access those resources of those supports? You know, so that part of the conversation gets left out for me when we just talk about how can we help people be more resilient to adapt to these circumstances? Absolutely. It is kind of this rush to, and we've, and we've seen this in a lot of conversations around racial justice, but it's kind of this rush to reconciliation without any reckoning. And I think we definitely see oftentimes a rush to resilience, right? Without even reconciling the very situations that that have created a need to even have something called resilience. And so when we're talking about people who are resilient or how do we build resilience? Well, I don't know if, if building resilience is something that you can, I don't know if you can build resilience because the idea too is that it's like, what are, what are this, like if, if, if I want to build resilience, like people have to actually go through these things, right? And so, no, we don't want, I don't know if I want to build people's resilience. Maybe I want to build people's ability to cope with the situations that are happening. So maybe people get better coping skills and all the social supports that you previously listed. But it, it kind of reminds me like of, like building people's immunity, right? And some of that is by exposure. Like, no, we can't, we don't want to. (laughs) I don't know if I want to build people's resilience as so much as I want to eliminate the social conditions that are even requiring it in the first place. And then when people do have to have these unfortunate circumstances, how can we have prepared people to have healthy 
coping skills, right? Regenerative things that don't that don't harm us as we're trying to get well. And then also whatever social supports they need because the one of the biggest things, like you said about the time off from work, that in particular, oh my goodness, we do not allow enough of adequate time. My wish list, if I had my way in this world, it would be adequate pay time off for people that are um, grieving because the way that people were basically dragging their shells back to their workplaces, the way we move through the world becomes such an extension of our grief. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. And I hate that people are being, that we have to put, that people are being put into those type of situations, but we have, we have to do better. Julia, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book, which you titled Survivor's Guilt. And you know, that's a term we hear a lot in the grief world, survivor's guilt, and it means different things to different people. And and what does that term mean to you? And how did you decide to title your book that? I think um, in survivor's guilt, I'm, I'm talking about, obviously, the loss of my son, which is central. But I'm also talking in that book, like, you know, having lost some childhood friends as well to violence. And so, you know, another thing my son and I had in common, we were both hard-headed teenagers, right? Like we both, I definitely was not <laughs> the shining example of listening to one's parents. And, you know, I've done all types of wild things, you know, but I live to be able to talk about them. I live to be able to tell about them. And I think just kind of even just having the guilt, even just related to my own son's uh, lived experience and, and how he would not survive at the age of 17. You know, and so yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm I'm getting at. Just like just kind of this concept of people that we've been connected to, people who may have had even similar experiences, and then why why do some of us make it and and survive, and some of us don't? Yeah, it's something that that I think about quite often. And are you in a place where that continues to just to be a question without answers? I um, I learned early on in my grief with my, my son's passing um, to just kind of be okay with not knowing. It just has brought me so much more peace than trying to always settle on an answer. So um, I read a lot of nonfiction and so I enjoy being able to get facts in those type of areas, a lot of history. And even that sometimes is not always clear and cut, but some of the other other dimensionally things, I kind of just, I've accepted that I'm not going to have those answers. The other part that really stood out to me in survivor's guilt is, is this kind of conscious internal process of coming to a place where you realized or decided, I don't know what word you would use for it, of the possibility that joy can exist right alongside grief, that one doesn't have to eclipse the other. And Tell me just like, talk about that a little bit. Like, what was that like for you? And how has that changed things for you? I honestly didn't know if I would be able to, to experience joy. I honestly did not know if, if I would be able to emerge from the darkness. And so when it happened, it really shocked me. I had to make a choice. And, and because of that, I did choose. I feel like grief gives us things that we don't always choose. And sometimes we also may not have the capacity to make a different choice. So I don't like to talk about things in very simplistic ways. But when I have a choice to acknowledge the grief that is present, I am absolutely going to make that choice. 
when I have the capacity to say that I don't, I don't have to be stuck in this moment, I make that choice. And so I don't, I offer that to people because I don't know if all of us know that we can make that choice. I don't know if all of us know that it is okay for us to still live. Like this is that survivor's guilt piece. Um, I don't know if all of us know that it is okay for us to still, to carry those losses with us in our heart and our memories, but to carry them, but you know, to not stay um, in that place when it's possible. So I think for me, it just really, it really shocked me. And so I have been realizing just, oh my goodness, just the emotional range that grief brings with it. If we are able to tap into it, you know, I can look back at this stuff now at the time I didn't, you know, I needed at the time I didn't know, like, you know, and I'll be honest. And that's why I'm trying to also have these conversations with people, especially early on in the grief process to kind of say, Hey, you might experience some of this. It's possible that it could mean this or feel like this because in the beginning I didn't know. Right. I can say I can wax poetically about it now and put meaning to it. But I just was like, okay, this is how I feel. Be honest about how you feel. That type of radical honesty, in a sense, was was somewhat new for me around how I was feeling about the pain. Just leaning into those feelings helped me to. To just acknowledge the good and the bad and everything in between the joy with the grief it has just been a way of life for me at this point. I've had similar conversations with people about that concept of gratitude or joy and grief. And there's something about what you said that's really standing out to me where I think sometimes that conversation can sound like just choose joy or just choose gratitude in the middle of your grief, which can feel impossible and, and maybe a little insulting. And so right. what I heard what I heard you saying is like joy arrived. There was this moment of joy and you made the choice to allow that moment in. So it's not like you fabricated joy in the midst of your grief. You just had to make a conscious choice to allow that joy to be there when it arose. Yes, and that's why even what you said about it can feel insulting to say that to people. And that's why I try to, even as a person in deep grief with lived experience, that's why I try to be very careful about how I frame it. Because one of the things that I don't like that we do to people that are grieving is this rush to gratitude, right? We want people to just be like, oh, but look at everything you still have, or look at the people that are still here, or think of all the good times. Yes people will probably get to that eventually, right? But let's not rush them through what they're feeling. We don't need to rush people to gratitude or joy or any of those things. As I talk about a survivor's guilt, in the past, I was worried that if I got too sad, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. And so I understand also why some people kind of do want to say that they are okay because they want it to be true. And then also some people are worried that if they get too low, they will never be able to get back up. I can't speak for everyone. I know for me that that turned out not to be true, that I had to experience, I had to acknowledge the pain because I just, it's part of this, it's part of your overall being. So 
I needed to I needed to know what the pain was there for. I needed to be honest about what I was experiencing and how it was impacting my life. And I think sometimes when we rush past that, when we don't kind of have that reckoning about what happened, you know, outside of us, what's happening inside of us, then we're just kind of pushing past. If we're not going to acknowledge the pain, then we're also not going to acknowledge that we might need some healing around it. That is what I have found that that allowing both of those things to coexist, acknowledging the joy and saying, hey, I want to continue to experience more of this makes me also more motivated and invested in continuing to do healing work because I do want to feel well. You've also talked about the idea of being an individual grieving in a collective that's grieving, whether that's your community or you know being a Black woman in, in the United States and the grief of of that. I'm just wondering how, yeah, how are you relating to that idea of like the individual and the collective grief? So it gets, it gets complicated at times. It gets very weary at times. You know, I am, I am grateful that I get to hold space for other folks that are grieving and do workshops and do healing, writing exercises and do all of that. But I'll be honest in the last few weeks, it has been weighing on me kind of that conversation we had around resilience, that it isn't just enough to kind of be reactive and say, hey, here's the grief work, but that some of this stuff should not be happening. And so as an individual person, I like to hope that I am offering a lived example of what could be possible. And as a part of a collective, I'm also feel kind of this individual artist or creative responsibility to talk about grief in a way that honors the added layers and nuance in which the way that Black folks might experience grief in this country. I mean, that's what it feels like for me, just acknowledging like even just how my individual loss mirrors that a lot of what the collective experience experiences. And so, yeah, I think I'm just always just trying to... Nuance is a word that you'll hear me say a lot, but I think I'm always just trying to to just say, hey, what layer do we need to see here? What space do we need to allow here? Also, Black folks, I guess I know all that has happened to us and all that we've endured, and it's still okay for us to want to do our healing work and not just push past this. These are the things that I'm trying to to hold space for. Yeah, it seems like you're really working as an artist, as a writer, and as a facilitator, to sort of bridge between creating space for people to have room for grief, to explore ways of healing, while also acknowledging, calling out, calling for change around the circumstances, as we mentioned earlier, that are creating this need for the space for healing as well. Absolutely. And like, and like Audre Lorde said, you know, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we don't live single issue um, lives. And I think that, yes, when you start talking about grief, um, I just had a, a coping with grief. Well, I was a, I was a facilitator. A, a group hired me to facilitate a coping with grief during the holidays workshop for them. And in that conversation, you know, so much came up about people just being able to access the resources that they need so that they can adequately grieve. And so when we talk about grief, we're like, okay, what are the issues that are are leading to gun violence in our communities? What are the issues that are leading to people not able to get well because they have to go back to work in three days? 
you know, people not having access to mental health supports and, and services. So um, it is, I'm trying to, in this space, allow conversations for all of that. And then when I get an opportunity to engage with people who could be change makers or influencers in those areas, trying to also have those conversations. Well, Julia, I'm imagining that our listeners right now are feeling inspired and wanting to connect more with you, as I would like to just keep talking to you all day long, but I want to be respectful of your time. And so wondering, tell us a little bit about like, what are your offerings and where can listeners connect with you? Absolutely. So um, people can easily connect with me. I'm on social media and my website, blackmermaids.com has links to all of my social media pages, but I also, you know, have, I facilitate workshops, you know, if um, people are looking for the schedule and how to sign up, that information is on my website and my Instagram pages are the Julia Mallory and at Black Mermaids brand. So if people want to connect with me, that's where they can find my writing, find my books, find my workshops. And you just started a new social cast called Stop Shrinking. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. So I, um, for the last two years, or this will be the third year, I've done a annual calendar at Black Mermaids. And so this year I was like, what theme do I want to do? And I watched the Lovecraft Country episode seven with Hippolyta, who I guess she would say she's kind of the matriarch character, but she has this revelation about how she had been shrinking herself. You know, she was a genius mathematician and um, she had even named a constellation as a child and had won a contest, but they would not award it to her because she was black. She was a black little girl. And so they didn't want to acknowledge it. So at some point she comes to the realization how she had been shrinking to feed everybody else's needs around her and had basically put her dreams on the back burner. And so she goes through this this series of uh, reckonings, so to speak, about how she came to that that conclusion. And I was so moved by that episode. And I was thinking, because a lot of the work that I do, some of the workshops um, really are tapping into our limiting beliefs, how we came to shape and think the way that we do and how that influences us. Um, And so I was really drawn to that example. So the Stop Shrinking and Social Cast is really talking to people that I think are doing great work, but also people that I know who have a unique and personal story around some of the challenges that they have overcome. I only ask three questions, which guides our conversation. And I also ask them a work in progress question. You know, tell me the way that you're also still shrinking so that people can also see you can do amazing things, but we're all still works in progress, right? We don't always figure it out all at the same time. So the Stop Shrinking Social Cast is to be able to offer people insight on just how we even get there. Like, how do we just decide one day we're going to play small, right? It doesn't happen like that. It's typically over a series of different events and things we've been exposed to. Well, I love watching it and I definitely recommend that for listeners because there's, even though the the show is not specifically about grief, I think there's an element of ways that maybe we start to shrink in our grief. And so you may find some inspiration. Absolutely. Well, Julia, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me and yeah, just really appreciating all that you had to share with me and our listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a uh, pleasure. 
And listeners out there, I'll put all the ways to find Julia and her work uh, in the show notes. So be sure to head there. And thank you for being part of our listening community for making the show mean something. So if there's anyone out there that you think might be helped by the show, please feel free to forward forward an episode over to them. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. Also, uh, that website is a great place to find all of our past episodes. So thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 